Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, uh, folks. Uh, welcome to Season 4 of uh, Wisdom of Friends, and I'm your host, Cal Ross. The theme for this season is Compelling Speakers and the Art of Public Speaking. And I'm delighted to be introducing you to Mike Robertson. Mike is creativity in a loud suit. As a professional speaker, he draws on a lifetime of chasing one creative rabbit after another, be it music, magic, writing, acting, graphic design, and painting. All those tracks unite in his unique approach to speaking while incorporating innovative and surprising visuals. I did not use any slides at all when I began speaking, Mike says. I felt the same way about PowerPoint as everyone else does. It's boring, repetitive, and distracting. But then I began thinking that with all my graphic design experience, I could at least make slides that were nice looking. They were more than nice looking. Mike quickly noticed something almost unprecedented. He put a slide on the screen and the audience burst into applause. He quickly knew that that did not happen very often, so he continued to expand on what he was doing, incorporating more creative use of fonts, colors, backgrounds, and even some magic techniques. The result quickly made Mike's reputation in the National Speakers Association and led to him creating slides for many top speakers in the US and Australia. Mike Robertson believes that life is an art project and he tries to add an interesting page, color, or melody to his own life every single day. Friends, this is a fascinating conversation where Mike talks about his journey all the way from Texas to uh, becoming one of the top speakers in the world. So please pull up a chair and listen in. And uh, let's welcome, without any further ado, Mr. Mike Robertson. So good evening, uh, Mike. Uh, Welcome to the Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took the time to be on this program. And let me start off with my first impressions of you. The first time I heard about you was through our mutual friend Earl Bell and Ron Ryle, uh, the ex-president of the NSA uh, chapter here in the Pacific Northwest. And then I got a chance to listen to your talk online. Uh, you, I believe you had given a talk at the Sanctuary in Texas. And uh, after listening to that uh, amazing speech, I kind of researched your background and I found out that you really have an incredible, eclectic background. You're an author, you're a musician, uh, a PowerPoint a maestro, if you will. And uh, I knew we, it would be great to have you on the show and have you share some of the insights with our audience. So again, uh, thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Oh, Cal, I'm honored you asked me. I'm excited about talking to you. Excellent. So one of the ways, uh, Mike, we uh, start our show is by asking our guest a very simple but a profound question, which is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? 
one of the things that I speak on, that I keynote on, is uh, what I call living a technicolor life. And I'm convinced that a lot of people go through life and they think this is this is fine, but they're not realizing they could actually kick it up a notch. And I, I tell the story of watching The Wizard of Oz when I was a kid and the moment when Dorothy's farmhouse gets picked up by the tornado and whirled around and around and it comes to rest with a thud and she goes to the front door and opens the door and suddenly she's in this technicolor world of Oz that has magical talking trees and flying monkeys. And and I, I talk about how that made such an impression on me, even though we had a black and white TV when I watched that movie the first few times. And so I realized later on that that's the way life is. You know, you, you go through ups and downs and you think, well, on the whole, my life is just fine. Well, what if you're just seeing the black and white version of it? And there is a technicolor version available. Just You just have to look for it and turn it on. And so that's kind of been the guiding principle in my life is what can I do that nobody else is doing? How can I uh, make the mold or think outside the box or, or make my own path that will be different from everyone else's? What can I do that will make my life into a better story? Now, that is so great. And uh, I like what you just shared about looking at life and looking at the technical vision of life uh, that oftentimes most of us miss out on. And you have indeed uh, definitely stepped outside the box and have been an original thinker in a lot of ways. Uh, Just for the benefit of the audience, uh, Mike Robertson is a professional member of the National Speakers Association and whose greatest joy is in helping people find and develop their creative abilities. He's also a musician and author of four books, also a gifted storyteller and has more than 20 years of graphic design experience. So Mike, uh, I'm curious, and this brings up a question as to how did this journey unfold for you? Uh, What was it? So if you could tell us, like, what did your parents do and how did that shape your life? And then how did you end up doing what you're doing today? Well, it's a lengthy story. I will summarize it and try to hit some high points, but my my father was a preacher, and uh, my mother was usually the secretary at the church where my father worked, and so I grew up going to church every Sunday and every Wednesday, and every time there was anything going on. But I don't know how to explain it, but from the time I was a small child, I had a performance bug. I, I wanted to be in front of an audience to perform, and... Nobody in my family was like that. There was nobody that was musical or had any particular uh, marketable talents. But so when I was a kid, I started doing magic tricks and I would do magic shows for my Cub Scout troop and things like that. And then when I became a teenager, I switched to music. I learned to play the guitar and the piano and started singing and realized that that was a a marketable skill that people would sit and listen to and applaud. And that was something that was very important to me. And uh, so I've done various creative things throughout my life. I did a long stand as a graphic designer and I worked in many churches as a musician or as a, uh, a youth minister to plan activities for teenagers. But always there was something in me that kept 
looking. I, I always feel that it was a journey I was on and that I had to go many different places and the path had to take many different turns before I finally arrived now at a place where I can use all of those abilities, the magic, the music, the speaking, the graphic design. It really all comes together now in what I do. And that, to me, is the ultimate satisfaction in life. And you can find something to do that that will make a living for you, but that also allows you to use all the skills that are hardwired into you at birth. Now, that is so great. And it's it's definitely a definition of a life well-lived when the vocation becomes uh, your vacation, as they say, and able to utilize all your gifts. And it seems like you are doing exactly that uh, through all your different uh, pursuits of uh, hobbies and interests with performance-related uh, as it relates to music and storytelling and uh, graphic design. And you really carved out a beautiful career for yourself here. And so my next question is, when you look back at your life and having had the successes that you've had, what would you say was the breakthrough success moment for you? And what I mean by that is the turning point, or in other words, life was never the same again moment. For me, that moment came in 1987. Uh, In 1987, I had just gotten married and I decided really with no real reason, I decided to buy a computer in 1987. I didn't know anybody that had a personal computer. I didn't know what I would do with one, but I went in this shop and the guy was showing me various computers and they all looked exactly alike, uh, just with the DOS arrow on the screen, you know, and, and then he showed me this other computer that was very different looking. And he turned it on, and it had a bright white screen instead of a black screen. And this little animated computer came up, and it said, Hello, welcome to Macintosh. Mm. And I thought, Oh, that's that's cool. And he said, Yeah, look at this program. You can click right here and drag, and it makes a circle. And then you click on this paint bucket, and you can fill the circle with a checkerboard pattern. And I I said, Okay, I want one. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but uh, I got... I got an early Mac and took it home and started playing with it and discovered that I was good at some things on it, particularly what then was a new field called desktop publishing. And so I began to use my computer to make uh, flyers and posters and things for my church job at the time. But I was also reaching the point in that job where I really felt stuck and stifled and that I was kind of in a dead end, but I I had to ask myself, what else can I do? I've been working in churches for 12 years. What can I do? And uh, so I was looking around our house thinking, what you know, I can direct a choir, but where's the market for that? I can drive the church van, but I don't want to be a bus driver. What can I do? And I I spotted the computer over in the corner, and I thought, I wonder if somebody would pay me to do the same kind of things I do on that computer. And so I thought about who that might be, and I realized there was a chain of print shops in Austin, uh, where I live now, that uh, I had had some things printed out before, and I thought, well, that might be an interesting place to work. And so I went to their office, and the receptionist said, can I help you? And I said, I'd like to fill out a job application. So she handed me their standard 
application and and I filled it out and I went home and sat by the phone and it never rang never rang for three days nothing happened and I realized I had to do something to set me apart from everyone else I had to turn on some technicolor some way and so I thought about what I could do and I, what I ended up doing was I designed a four-page newsletter that was really all about me. It was called the Robertson Reader. And in these four pages, it showed uh, visibly that I knew how to set type that would look like a magazine. I uh, showed that I knew how to design logos because here's six logos I designed. It showed that I could scan photos at home in 1990, which uh, was very, very early technology, very bizarre technology. And, uh, you know, it had a list of all the programs I was proficient in and a list of reasons why I would be the best employee this company had ever hired. And so I printed up a few copies of it and went back to the same uh, office and the same receptionist said, can I help you? And I said, I want to leave these here. And also I will wash the car or shine the shoes of anybody in this company. Well, behind the secretary, behind the receptionist was row after row of cubicles, and I could see heads popping up over the cubicles as people wanted to see who this was who was volunteering to shine shoes or wash cars. Well, I didn't have to do any of that that day, but I I would have because I was stuck. I was at a place in my life I did not like, and I just was yearning to break free. So I left the newsletters there. I went home, and just two hours later, my phone rang. And it was the president of this print chain. And she said, I can see that you are a person I need to meet. Can you come and meet with me tomorrow? I said, oh, yes, ma'am. So I went in the next day, and she had a big mahogany desk, and there was nothing on her desk except for my newsletter sitting right in the middle of it. She said, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, but we don't have a job for you. Mm. Uh, And I I thought, well, you could have told me that on the phone. She said, I I do have an idea, though, and I said, what's that? She said, I always thought it would be cool if somebody came into one of our shops and uh, and they said, I, I need a logo. I need I have a new business. I need business cards and letterhead and forms. Wouldn't it be great if that person could sit down with a designer and watch their stuff being created and then walk out the door with a finished product? Do you think you could do that, Mike? Do you think you could do while you wait desktop publishing? That, that Kyle, is a life-changing question right there. Do you think you can do this? Mm. And I didn't know for sure if I could do this, but I knew that I was in a position where I was stuck. And I said, yes, absolutely, I can do it. And so they hired me. They bought me a new computer. They made a place for me in one of their stores. And I became the first definitely definitely in Austin and and possibly in the whole state of Texas. I became the first while you wait graphic designer uh, on a computer, a desktop publisher. And it was great training because it was trial by fire. You have a person sitting next to you that's paying you by the hour. You can't say, well, let me think about your logo for a couple of days. you got to sit down and, and bang it out, and you never know what's coming in. The next thing is a realtor who needs a brochure or a, a band that wants a, a cover for their cassette or their CD. And so it made me get 
really good, really quick. And a year and a half later, I opened my own graphic design business. And and that started me on the path where I ultimately end up today because now those same graphic design skills I use on the screen when I speak. And I do these really cool slides that often get applause on their own. Uh, my slides sometimes get more applause than my speech does. And it all started because when this president of this company said, do you think you could do that? I I just said yes instead of saying, can I think about it and get back to you? And I, I'm convinced that that's the key to a successful life, a life full of wonderful stories and and wonderful leaps of faith is just when an opportunity presents itself, you you got to say yes. Wow, I, this is really an inspiring story. I mean, it it's it started off with your ability to hustle in a way to look at opportunities to how to really make a living given uh, the options you had in front of you. So you ended up going to this uh, print chain office in uh, in Texas, and uh, you applied for a job, and then you waited for a few days, and you didn't get the call, and then finally you stumbled upon the uh, Apple computer. And then that led to a series of events where you started toying with that machine. And then uh, you created your own uh, magazine, if you will, and then left some of the prototype uh, back in the uh, print chain office. You get a call back from the president. And then she asked you that life-changing question that, will you be able to do this? And you said yes. And that made uh, the biggest difference uh, going forward. And now you're you're one of the pioneers uh, as uh, far as uh, presentation is concerned and creating PowerPoint slides and uh, to that effect. Now, what an incredible story. This is a ma- magnificent lesson for all of us listening as to how to well, say and, yes and, to life. And when you think about it, Cal, that if you look at what happened in that, that story, I only applied at one place, and it was for a job that did not even exist. But yet, because... I was ready to say yes. It it truly changed my life. And furthermore, that was the last job application I have ever filled out in 1990. Everything that has come to me since then has come because someone had said, we like what you're doing. Would you like to come do it for us for more money? And I said, yes. No, that is that is so great, and and the other thing, the other thing that I'm also hearing in your sharing is uh, the, this amazing attribute of doing something different, not following the ordinary, stepping outside the box, and uh, having blazing your own trails. I mean, that's that's something that I'm kind of like hearing from your sharing up until this point, and that is such a beautiful point uh, for ambitious people out there uh, who are trying to uh, make a living or trying to make a difference in any industry or domain. Now, that is really, really inspiring, Mike. And and that brings up my next question to you. Having had many guests on the show, and one of the common uh, trends that we have noticed is these amazingly successful people have had setbacks in life. And oftentimes, uh, an average person would look at that setback and consider it as a massive failure. But these successful people would look at these setbacks as a platform, as a stepping stone towards even greater challenges and bigger successes. So my question to you is, what were one or two biggest challenges that you have faced in your life, and how did you overcome it, and what were some of the lessons 
that you learned from those uh, challenges that helped you navigate life going forward? Well, you know, sometimes life doesn't give you what you ask for, but it gives you what you need. And and my life is full of examples of that. When I was in college or high school and college, I wanted to be Elton John or Billy Joel. I played the piano. I sang. I thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be a rock star. And I went to, to college as a music major, and I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a rock star. But, you know, I still had a, I had too much fear. I was... I was afraid to go into debt and buy a keyboard that I could join a band with. I was afraid to go on the road and and play in strange places. And so I I kept playing for myself, but I kind of put it on a back burner. And now when I look around at the people, a lot of the people whose records I listened to back when I was in college and the years after that, those people are now playing in tiny little bars all over the country, and and it makes me think, gee, maybe it's a good thing I didn't uh, didn't go that route because even if I'd been successful, could I have maintained it, or would it be a big hit and then a long slow decline? And so, what I love about my life now is that I'm 63. I don't I don't even think I have peaked yet. I think I keep growing and I keep getting better at the things I do and I keep finding new ways to use those talents. And that's what makes life exciting. I want I want to hit a peak and then die the next day. I don't want to have a long, slow decline where I'm sitting in a nursing home. You know, I, I want to hit a peak and, and then check out. That, to me, is a perfect life. Uh, so I haven't had any any huge, terrible things happen to me. I've had disappointments. I've had uh, jobs not come through, or I've been uh, let go from jobs that I liked, and I haven't always got the jobs I wanted. But those are minor things. It's It's been a incredible journey with lots of twists and turns, and it's only now as I am higher up on the mountain that I can look back and see what a windy, windy path it has been. But every stop along the way was necessary. No, that is uh, really a very uh, important point that you make, Mike, is that success is never a straight line. And oftentimes we have to take uh, a lot of detours, but those are learning lessons. And and the fact that uh, you've had this amazing perspective on life, that uh, there is a peak and a valley and, and uh, not to have that steady decline, but all like really uh, keep improving yourself and growing yourself and learning and developing and competing at the highest levels. And I think that's really uh, an amazing, inspiring uh, uh, point of view and mindset to have. Uh, my next question to you is, uh, taking a walk down the memory lane here, uh, who were your mentors growing up? And uh, were there any particular people that you want to give a shout out to that made a big difference in your life? Uh, I went to high school in a very, very, very small town in South Texas, 742 people in the whole town. And yet, uh, well, our high school is so small, I had the same English teacher for four years in a row. But I realized after I got out of high school, my English teacher was one of the best teachers I've ever had. She was in this little town in the middle of nowhere very limited resources, and yet she was so open to doing things that would help us to learn 
that were not just answer the questions at the end of the chapter. So in our high school English class, this one year we made a movie, and this was before videotape was even available. We had to shoot it on 8mm silent film, and we had to write a script and build sets and do costumes and props, and, and somebody had to direct it and put it all together. And we did that in an English class, and it was awesome. Uh, another year we, we wrote a musical, uh, broke up into groups, and the group that I was in, we wrote a little 15-minute musical, and we did it for our school, and it went over so well, they said, uh, well, here, let's go over to this school and do it. So we did a little tour of our original musical, and I learned from her that sometimes the best learning is not what's in the book, it's in the experience that requires you to use your imagination and your brain. So uh, that teacher's name was Billy Hyden, and uh, she is still alive. She is still an incredible uh, woman, and I, I think she's the best teacher I ever had. Wow, no, that is so great. And and uh, would you say that uh, her influence was uh, definitely a factor when you wrote your first novel, This uh, this Is Where I Came In, which is a fascinating look at the little-known aspect of American history, which is uh, the motion picture industry? That's an interesting connection you draw, but I haven't really made that myself. But, yeah, she was influential, and, in fact, uh, when I was in high school, I thought, you know, I'd like to be a writer while well, I'm not being a rock star or an actor or uh, something else. And she actually had uh, had taken the famous writer's course that used to be in all the magazines. And she let me borrow it and go through it and take what I could from it. And I had almost forgotten about that till you brought it up. But, yeah, she was uh, influential. And that novel is something I'm really, really proud of. Uh, I never, I hadn't written anything longer than a, a term paper in high school. And I just sat down and I said, I'm going to write this story and I'm going to write three pages a day. And when I get to the end of three pages, I can quit. Even if I'm in the middle of a sentence, I can quit. And so I started writing. And if you write three pages a day in a couple of months, you've got a pretty good stack of stuff going. And that, that story, that novel, took me places I did not even plan. It didn't It didn't end when I planned. It didn't happen the way I thought it would happen. It took on a life of its own to the extent that I remember writing one scene, and I got to the end, and I realized there were tears rolling down my cheeks, and I thought, why am I crying? I, I thought of this. And it still affected me so much because these characters had become so real to me. No, that's so great. And uh, for the audience, this book uh, by Mike Robertson, This Is Where I Came In, it really uh, gives the readers who love movies uh, a synopsis on the very first films, uh, 20 years before even Charlie Chaplin stepped in front of a camera. So it's definitely a fascinating uh, book uh, to read. And then you have some other books that you've written, uh, Shiny Spots in the Rust and the Pearls and the Big uh, Pen, and then you have your latest book. Uh, could you tell us more about your latest book that you've written? The latest one is called The Pizza, The Peach, and The Platypus. And uh, a lot of people wonder what what in the world could that be? And so I joke with them and say, oh, it's a cookbook of, with pizzas and peaches and platypuses. But no, it's actually, uh, it's actually the uh, 
companion to the keynote speech that I do on creativity and how you can live a more creative life. So it's sort of that speech expanded upon in book form uh, because a lot of people wanted something to take away when I did that, that speech. And so it contains that idea of living a technicolor life, and it shares a, a really simple formula that I've come up to help me make decisions, and I think it works for other people too. Uh, it's just three one-syllable words, and I even made it so they rhyme. But the formula is skill, drill, and thrill. And so the skill is what talent or ability you have that most people don't have. Whether it seems like a big talent to you or not, you can do something better than most people. What is it? The drill part is you need to to sharpen that talent. You need to study up on it. You need to practice it and strengthen it and make sure it's ready when the opportunity comes for you to use it. And then the thrill is the thrilling idea of when you use that talent in a direction that nobody has thought to use it before. And uh, I, it's, the book is full of stories from my life and from a couple of other people's lives of examples of how that has worked when I wanted to do something different. And I had to ask myself, what skills <clears throat> do I have? And how can I perfect them and use them in a very effective way? Now, that is so great. And uh, the keynote that uh, Mike's uh, referring to here is The Art of Readiness, creatively saying yes to success. And I really like uh, the formula, Mike. Uh, It's skill, drill, and thrill. And I think uh, one of the key takeaways from this uh, uh, topic that you talk about is uh, innovation does not come from copying someone else. It comes from being your own unique self. And uh, this allows, this formula allows you to do that. Now, that is great. And and the other popular keynote that you have uh, is The Creature from the Next (coughs) Cubicle, A Guide to the Monsters in Your Office. So my question to you is, Uh, You mentioned that understanding is uh, being the beginning of the empathy and acceptance. Could you share a little bit more about that? Well, that's a really fun look at what is usually, excuse me, usually a very dry topic, which is employee relationships and competition in the workplace. And so I thought, what if we approached it from the viewpoint of, of all those classic movie monsters uh, Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman and the Mummy. And, and so I take about 13 or 14 of those classic movie monsters and I relate each one to a personality type that you find in every workplace. I mean, every office has has a Dracula. Uh, Dracula in the office is the, the person who always swoops in and sucks the life out of whatever everybody else is excited about and looking forward to. Uh, the, the office Dracula has a way of making that scene pointless and sour. And so it's a real fun look with real cool visuals of all these monsters and some really neat, uh, neat effects. And it leads to a pretty surprising conclusion at the end because the reason these movie characters are monsters it's not because they're different. It's because they do bad things. And so the question I ask the audience at the end of this program is, what do we call monsters who do good things? Well, we call them superheroes. And so I put on the screen monsters like the Hulk and Wolverine and the Thing and, you know, uh, Groot and 
and you've never thought of it like that. We we never think of those creatures as if they did something bad, we would consider them monsters, but because they do something good, they're superheroes. Mm. So how can we take the monsters in our office and, and help them to become the heroes they really want to be and need to be? How can we understand them better? And that's a really fun thing. I did it in your neighborhood there in Seattle last year. And, uh, and we did a real cool finish. We did, we did an audience participation song. We all stood up and sang and danced to the monster mash. And I wrote new lyrics for it that pertain to this particular uh, organization that I was speaking to. So they recognized a lot of the names and the incidents that were referenced in the lyrics and, and they were singing along on the chorus about the monster mash. And it was just a really fun, fun time. Uh, what is usually a very dull topic. No, that is such a great analogy that you just uh, shared with us here. It's about uh, monsters and uh, inspiring them to be superheroes. And it's it's really the distinction that comes to mind when you say that is that, you know, people are have the potential to be superheroes. <clears throat> and it's about listening to their greatness it allows them to shine through and be the best version of themselves. And that's such a great point that you make there. Uh the other thing I'm curious about, Mike, is I know you have uh, a lot of uh, uh, skills and talents. And uh, so, are there any favorite hobbies and interests that you have? Well, I'm a huge, uh, a huge fan of movies. Of course, since I wrote a novel about the birth of the movies, you might might know that. <clears throat> but I like movies, especially old uh, black and white movies. 30s and 40s are probably my favorite era. And uh, and I'm also a voracious reader. I'm constantly reading. And I love music. And I play music. I write music. I sing. I uh, play several instruments. And so I'm interested in any, anything creative. I love art. I love um, painting. I love music. I love uh, writing. Anything that allows me to be creative, I'm all about. On the other hand, I have no business sense whatsoever. I'm a terrible businessman, uh, but I'm a happy, creative person. Mm, that's so great. And then uh, I know you travel quite a bit for your speaking engagements and workshops. <laughs> and uh, are there any favorite places that you like to travel to? And uh, what about this place you uh, like so much? I'm always glad to go anywhere. I haven't been before, especially. I love seeing new places. But having said that, when I was in Seattle just three weeks ago, it reminded me again how much I love driving through mountains and forests. There's something calming about it. And you mentioned Earl Bell. He was driving me uh, around Seattle in the country outside Seattle. And he said he moved out of Seattle to Snoqualmie and his blood pressure went down 20 points or something. And I, I could certainly understand why, because as we drove through those forests and those big mountains, I just felt myself really calm and at ease. And I'm I'm pretty tightly wound a lot of the time because I have a lot going on. But it made me just relax and take a deep breath and just enjoy the beauty. And so I'd have to say my favorite place is a place with mountains and forests. That's, that's something really beneficial to me 
Yeah, that's that's so great, and definitely Seattle is uh, definitely has its own uh, wonderful charm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you got a chance to uh, go through some of those uh, wonderful places. Uh, I believe uh, there's a picture of you with uh, the Twin Peaks. Uh, uh, right, the diner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's... I insisted we go to some of the Twin Peaks uh, filming sites because I'm a huge fan of Twin Peaks, but. Earl was a, a great guide. Well, that's that's so great. And then uh, the other question that comes up, uh, Mike, is now having uh, experienced this ebb and flow of life and having seen all the successes and uh, the challenges and the disappointments, what would you say is your definition of a successful life or a life well lived? For me, a successful life is one in which you continue to challenge yourself you continue to grow regardless of your age there's never a place where you say i'm just going to coast from now to the finish line i've been very inspired by the story i read of a woman who was the oldest woman to ever run the new york marathon she finished the marathon she was 92 years old and uh you know she didn't set any speed records but she ran the whole marathon at the age of 92 and she went home and she died that night and some people hear that story and they think oh that's so sad and to me it's just the opposite that's the way to go i want to i want to set a new benchmark to set a new record to make a new achievement and then leave right then i'd be happy to die on a stage in the middle of a speech you know, I would love to be doing something I love, something creative, instead of just sitting there waiting for the finish line to arrive. Mm, that's that's so great, so great. I, I like that uh, philosophy of uh, uh, really performing at your peak and then uh, leaving uh, our uh, yeah, leaving the planet on a peak actually. And that's that's really a, a great uh, point of view there. Uh, so this brings up another question, and if you could then, let's say a hypothetical question here, Mike, and if you had a time machine and you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, your 20-year-old self or a 25-year-old self, what advice would you give him? I would tell myself to not be afraid to take a leap of faith that seemed a little scary, that there are things that are more important than knowing you're going to get a paycheck every two weeks. Uh, more important than that is is life satisfaction of growing and stretching yourself, uh, your talents, your spirituality, your experience of the world around you. I, I think I was too held back by my own fears and worries when I was younger. And it was not uh, for several years after that that I first took my first big leap of faith and I have found since then that they are very liberating. They're scary, but they're very liberating. And so I still like to take one when I have the opportunity. No, that's uh, very inspiring. I like that. It's taking the leap of faith, and uh, that is definitely a classic message uh, that we can all learn from. (laughs) And uh, moving on to, and we're going to shift gears here, uh, Mike. We're going to move on to our next section of our uh, podcast here, and that is the questions that we have received from our audience. And so the first question I have for you is, what stops people, in your opinion, from achieving their full potential? Fear. I think fear is the the main inhibitor to us 
really achieving our dreams or trying to achieve our dreams. And the other one is worrying too much about what other people think or what other people have done. If you're concerned about following in somebody else's footsteps, you're never going to make your own unique place in this world. You're going to end up being a, a bad copy of somebody else's life that's not even your own. And uh, so don't be afraid to be the only one doing something. That usually means you're an original and you're going to be very successful. Mm, I like that. And then uh, the next question is, what is the biggest lesson or insight that you've learned about life in general that you would like to share with our audience? One big one is that uh, stuff is not valuable as you think it is, but people are, relationships are, uh, encounters with other human beings are. When I, it used to be when I would go on a vacation, I was all about, oh, what record stores are in that town? What bookstores are in that town? Where can we go to buy cool stuff in that town? And eventually you end up with a house full of cool stuff. And after you look at it a couple of times, you think, okay, that's cool, but now i got to dust it the rest of my life. And uh, it takes up shelf space. And where are we going to put this? And so my wife and I began to realize that the things we really remembered from our trips were the interactions we had with people along the way. And so now we buy very few souvenirs. What we look for instead is who can we talk to and spend time hearing their story. And it's usually fascinating and fun. And sometimes you end up forming relationships that can continue for many years. So I would say collect experiences and not souvenirs. Mm, that's such a beautiful message. And as you said, rightly said so, it's the relationships, the quality of our relationships it gives us a quality of a life. And that's uh, really a profound uh, insight right there. And uh, the next question is, uh, excellence, they say, is about practicing good habits. And what do you spend most of your time doing uh, during the day? What, what, how do you maintain your sanity as far as uh, so that your creativity and your excellence is always improving and growing and uh, you're at your peak? I like to think of myself, I like to think of all of us actually as, as a blender. We're a blender and we just put stuff in the blender all day long. And so all day long, I'm reading things that I think, oh, that's interesting. It go, all goes in the blender. I hear a song I like. It goes in the blender. I see a movie that affects me in some way. It goes in the blender. And it all gets blended together, and then it comes out of me in some different form through in a speech or in a song or in a, a book or a painting. Something I do is really the sum total of everything I've read or heard or experienced. And all of us are like that. We need to, to be more mindful about it and say, I need to keep putting great stuff into my blender so that I can do greater stuff with my life. Uh, because we're constantly feeding, putting stuff in our gas tank. But where are we going? Are we heading towards a destination that's meaningful? Or are we just driving around in circles? Mm, that's that's beautiful. And and the next question is, I know, Mike, uh, you have, you're a professional member of the National Speakers Association, and uh, and you're regarded as one of the rare speakers who connects with the audience uh, in a seemingly effortless ways. And so my question to you is, uh, what's your secret? How do you do that? <laughs> well, 
it's it's all about discovering who you are. Uh, like I said before, if you if you spend your life trying to copy somebody else, you just end up being a a bad copy, like a bad Xerox copy of something. And it takes a while. It takes you being on stage in front of a lot of little audiences that aren't paying you before you begin to realize, oh, I do have a style. I do feel more comfortable if I do it like this instead of like that person does it. And so once you develop your own style, you find your own voice, you stop trying to sound like another speaker, uh, or you you stop trying to use big words to impress the intellectuals in your audience, but you just talk in a conversational way and you tell a lot of stories, but you make those stories applicable to other people's lives, you'll succeed because people are hungry for stories. That's how we learn. That's how we retain uh, information. That's how we make changes in our own life often is by hearing stories from someone else. And it makes us say, I need to do that too. And so uh, it's just practice, practice, practice. Speak anytime you get an opportunity, and your own style will eventually come together, and you'll you'll become your own person. Mm, that's that's great. It's about being original and uh, <clears throat> and not trying to imitate somebody else. No, that's that's a great point. Uh, talking about the speaking industry and this just this industry in general, my question to you is, what are the top things you wish you knew more about when starting out in this profession? Well, I, I wish I was better at the business end of the speaking business. I feel like I do the speaking part very well, but I don't do the business part very well. I don't like the selling part of it. I don't like the cold calling people. Um I I still have the antique notion in my brain that if you're really, really good, people will find you and discover you and hire you. And I do believe that, but it takes much, much longer than if you have the basic skills on how to network better, how to approach people, how to leverage your your, uh, connections with one group into connections with another group and how to build a career instead of just waiting for jobs to fall into your lap. So I, I wish I were better at that. Um, yeah. But I'm sticking with what I got. <laughs> no, that, no, that's an excellent point. And I think uh, there is always uh, scope for improvement, no matter how good one is at the marketing end of it. And uh, there's always the opportunity to learn and network and learn from the other experts in the field. And uh now, moving on to our next question, and this is your forte as we understand it. It's uh, it's about creating PowerPoint slides because really uh, one of the things that you've done exceptionally well is combine all these experiences of graphic design as a musician, as an amazing storyteller to uh, create these uh, PowerPoint slides or keynote slides, if you will. And so the question is, Uh, Talk to us about the screen being a powerful partner and the untapped potential of the PowerPoint. Uh, What are are some of the tips that you could give our audience? Well, you mentioned uh, my background in design and music and storytelling. You didn't mention the, the childhood background in magic, and that's a huge part of what I do on slides now, is how can I do magical things with slides? And part of that is... I like to interact with the screen. A lot of speakers will stand over to the side behind a podium and never even get close to the screen. 
I like to interact with it and, and make it, as you say, a partner in my performance. And so sometimes I will have a bunch of words on the screen and I'll walk up to the screen and just slap it and a bunch of the letters will fall off, but what's left will spell something totally different. And the audience goes, ooh, because they haven't ever seen anybody do that. Or I'll reach up and grab a letter on the screen and move it to the front of the word so it spells something different. And and I do all kinds of stuff like that uh, when I tell that Wizard of Oz story. And I talk about watching it in black and white. I have a black and white picture from the movie on the screen. And I walk in front of the screen and I rub my hand across it and it changes to Technicolor. And it gets a real wow from the audience. And so I'm always looking for ways I can do things that they're not expecting because we all like to be surprised in a good way. We always like somebody to give us more than we're expecting. And uh, so I try to, to build surprises into a lot of my slides so that they will not only convey the information I want to convey, but they'll do it in a way that's very entertaining and sometimes mystical to the audience as well. Now, that is such a beautiful point. And I think uh, really it's the component of magic is what you bring to your presentations. And that's what makes uh, your uh, speeches so unique because it's a combination of so many wonderful aspects of life. It's truly an art of uh, delivering powerful presentations. And so my question to you is, uh, Mike, if somebody was starting out in this uh, field of uh, speaking and storytelling and they're trying to hone their skills what advice would you give them how well, what would you suggest that where do they get started and how do they uh, look at becoming the best at this profession or this uh, domain of speaking and storytelling well the answer is saying yes uh, there are speaking opportunities all over the place they're not always very glamorous but, you know, every town has at least one Rotary Club, one Lions Club, one Kiwanis Club, one Chamber of Commerce. And those groups usually have a speaker every week when they meet. And if you can imagine it from the point of view of the program chair of those organizations, that's hard to find 50 speakers in a year. And so they would love for you to call out and say, hey, I, I have a talk I'd like to do on leadership or about my experiences in uh, the war or whatever your topic of choice might be. Uh, chances are you can find some place that will let you do it free. They won't pay you for it. They may buy you lunch, but it's going to give you experience, and that is what is going to hone that speech into something that's really worth paying money for because you find out what works, what doesn't work, how you can get a better laugh if you change one word, how you can end with a strong ending instead of just saying, well, I guess I'm done. Uh, how can you make a speech that has power to it instead of just talking for 20 minutes or however long they give you? So I would just say yes to every opportunity. Speak anywhere you can for any number of people. When I decided I wanted to be a speaker, what was in my mind was Steve Jobs in front of those massive video screens introducing the iPad or something like that to an adoring audience of a couple thousand people. I never had the thought in my mind of standing up in front of eight people in a back room of a Mexican restaurant while they're eating their lunch. That's not very glamorous, but it's valuable. And if you can keep the attention of people who are chowing down on their tacos while you're talking, you're, you've got potential. 
Wow, no, that is uh, that is such a great point. And by the way, uh, I they they had mentioned that, and I I don't know if this is uh, really true or not, but it's uh, it was mentioned that Steve Jobs indeed uh, uh, did uh, dabble into magic before. Uh, so that's how he uh, really honed his skills mm. about presentation as well. So uh, no, that that's uh, that's a conversation for another time. But uh, the next question is uh, about your books and writing. Uh, is there, what what's your writing process like, Mike? Uh, do you write every day, or uh, what's uh, what's your creative process I like? <laughs> I wish I wrote every day. Uh, that's how I wrote that novel, and I haven't written a novel since. So clearly, I'm not doing it every day. But I, I usually let things gestate in my brain for a long, long period of time, and uh, and I will get ideas usually in a place where I can't write, like while I'm driving or while I'm in the shower or in the moments before I drop off to sleep or in the moments when I first wake up in the morning and I'm still lying there in bed. Uh, that's when I get some of my best ideas. So there's a lot of mental writing that goes before I ever put it down on paper. I need to be more disciplined in doing that. I need, I don't, I don't have a blog, but I understand the value of them because if you have a deadline every day, it, it forces you to be creative. And when I was in the graphic design business, of course, it was nothing but deadlines. So I was extremely productive. Now I, I spend more time thinking than I do writing, but I would like to flip-flop those. Great. No, that's that's, uh, that's an awesome point. And moving on to the next section, and this is a rapid-fire round, uh, Mike, and this is where I'm going to ask you a bunch of quick questions, of fun questions, and uh, it's the first response that comes to your mind, and if you uh, feel the need to elaborate on it, please feel free to do so. So this is the rapid-fire round. So are you ready, Mike? I am ready. Okay, great. So my first question to you is, I know, are you still mad about the Beach Boys not winning the Grammy? (laughs) (laughs) A little. (laughs) So the next question is, what is your favorite music band? Well, it would be the Beach Boys, or more particularly Brian Wilson. Okay, got it. In recent times, I like, uh, I've liked bands like Jellyfish, I like... uh, Music by Kirk Franklin or anything Quincy Jones produces, Steely Dan. I like music played by real musicians and real singers. Hmm. The next question is, what book you've read again and again or gifted uh, or re-gifted over the years? The book I probably read the most is called Time and Again by a man named Jack Finney. It's a, it's a novel, but it's written in a really fascinating way. It incorporates some uh, interesting images in it. I won't spoil it for anybody, but it's well worth your time. I've also read uh, John Irving's book, A Prayer for Owen Meany, which was made into the movie Simon Birch, but the book is much better than a movie. And I like anything Malcolm Gladwell writes because he's very gifted at getting stories and making interesting points that don't seem evident at first glance. Absolutely. A big fan of Malcolm Gladwell's work as well. Uh, And we'll include all this in our show notes here for the benefit of the audience. And then uh, the next question is, Mike, if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be? Wow, that's a hard one. Um, I would 
I would like to have witnessed the very first exhibition of the motion picture projector. I think it would have been pretty fascinating to see for the very first time to see pictures moving on a screen and not be able to figure out why that was even possible. Mm. That's that's so great. And then the next question is, uh, what are the five most important things in life, according to you? Let's see. Pizza would be number one. (laughs) No, uh, Family is the most important thing. Love is extremely important. Food is very important. Knowledge is important. And uh, creativity. No, is that five? Did we, I say five? That's five, yes. Awesome. Okay. And then one final question within the rapid fire round section, and that is, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? Skill, drill, and thrill. Find Mm. your Technicolor life. Uh, That's awesome. Skill, drill, and thrill. That's a beautiful message. And then moving on to our final section. This is the wrap-up section. I just have the final three questions for you. Mike, so the first question is, what is your current personal or business project that you're working on, and what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year? Well, I'm working on right now a project that's going to be done in February, I've been asked to design all the visuals for the uh, National Speakers Association Winter Conference in Baltimore in February. And the theme of that conference is the future of speaking. So I'm very honored that they have asked me to provide all the all the visuals for that conference. So I get to stretch my uh, stretch my wings a little bit and try to think, what is the future of presentation design? And how can I put something up on the screen that's going to be really, really cool for several hundred people to look at? No, that is wow. That is indeed a fascinating uh, topic right there. <clears throat> the next question is, uh, what are three things you're grateful for in life today? I am very grateful for my eyes because I read so much. I take in so much. I observe so much. That is my main input device and i've often i've often thought i'd rather be deaf than blind because i i don't think i could do without reading uh not just books but things on the screen and watching movies and and looking at art um so my eyes are are hugely important um ask me the question again what are the yeah the three the three things you're grateful for in life okay um the love of my family and friends is something that never gets old to me and and I really need that uh I think love is the most powerful force in the world and and there are people that never really get to experience much of it so I'm very grateful for the love that I have got to gotten to experience yeah. and then the third one I would say is music. I'm grateful for music. Music can make me feel good when I'm feeling bad. There, I have playlists on my phone that when I'm flying home from a speaking event, I always put on this playlist. And there's something about listening to it on a plane that just it just makes me calm, but it also kind of makes me very grateful and emotional for what what a charmed life I get to live. I get to go places and get paid to stand up and share 
things I think are cool. And that's great. And the music that I choose for those those trips reminds me of how I should be grateful for that. No, that is so beautiful. And uh, I just want to acknowledge you, uh, Mike, for a couple of things here. And one is uh, that you've led a remarkable life, uh, a small a town in Texas and uh, starting over there and really designing your life by pursuing an interest and a hobby of yours. And then uh, what a remarkable journey it's been all the way from the days of the uh, the print chain office in Texas to becoming one of the top speakers in the globe today. And uh, And then the fact that you practice what you preach and help people find and develop their creative abilities with your talks, with your messages, with your books. And that is so inspiring. And then we can all learn from that. And you're such a role model for all of us uh, in the community here, uh, in the speaking community, as well as uh, just uh, people who listen to you online as well. So again, uh, thank you for being you, Mike, and uh, appreciate you being so generous with your time and sharing your wisdom with all of us. You are very kind. Thank you for those wonderful words, and I have really enjoyed talking to you this evening. Great. And then uh, one final question, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews, Mike, and that is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? Because that's the way to learn. That's the, You hear someone else's stories, and it, it opens a new door in your brain, and you say, oh, I hadn't thought about doing that. I need to explore that area of my own life. And you can learn so much from other people's stories. There's nothing I would rather do than uh, hear people open up about how they got to where they got to. Your path won't be exactly the same as theirs, but you will learn something from hearing their path. So I think this show is going to be invaluable uh, in that area. Great, and thank you so much for that feedback, and I really appreciate our conversation today. And uh, for those of us who are listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.